What's up, everyone, and welcome to the Renewable Energy Smart Pod. I'm your host, Sean McMahon, and today we're going to be talking about a debate that's percolating in the residential solar power market that, if it's not resolved carefully, could end up hammering the renewables industry and taking a big bite out of the wallets of rooftop solar customers. The debate is about net energy metering. For those of you who don't know what net energy metering is, don't worry. My guest today is Joseph Tripke from Liam Research, and he's going to walk us through it. He'll explain what net energy metering is and why you should care about it, even if you think the rooftop solar market has nothing to do with you. As you'll hear, this issue is also particularly complex in this day and age because of factors like equity and energy and the jobs, jobs, jobs that the energy transition is supposed to keep powering. Also, be sure to stick around after our conversation ends because we're debuting a new segment of the Renewable Energy Smart Pod called the Pod Brief. Looking ahead to the next few weeks, we've got a lot of awesome episodes on tap. ESG investing is exploding, so we'll be talking to Maggie Peloso from Benson & Elkins about what companies need to do to prepare for disclosure rules coming down the pipeline for that hot market. And speaking of hot markets, renewable energy credits are in high demand. Steve McCombs from Incubex will join the show to talk about trading trends in that space. And bringing things closer to consumers, RMI recently published a paper about the green mortgage market. That's an important topic because while we spend a lot of time talking about new technologies and renewables and energy efficiency, none of those technologies will deliver on their promise if consumers can't afford them. Greg Hopkins is one of the authors of that RMI paper, and he'll be joining the show to talk about the key findings. So that's a look at what's coming up the next few weeks, and today we've got a great show. But before we kick off today's episode, just want to remind you that EDF Renewables is a market-leading independent power producer and service provider with over 35 years of expertise in developing wind, solar, storage, and electric vehicle charging systems. EDF Renewables, energy your way. Today, we're talking about net energy metering. It's a topic that's scorching hot in the residential power markets, and I'm joined now by the perfect guest to walk us through the issue. His name is Joseph Tripke, and he's a partner at Liam Research. Joseph, how are you doing today? I'm good. How are you, Sean? I'm doing great. I'm doing great. Now, before we dive into net energy metering and all the dynamics around the residential solar market, why don't you go ahead and share your background with our listeners? Sure. Well, uh, first, Sean, I just want to say I'm a longtime listener, first-time caller. And by long-time <laughs> listener, I mean uh, as long as you've been podcasting. So I did want to say- Two weeks, a whole two weeks you've been listening. Huh? <laughs> well, I've enjoyed the first couple episodes and just wanted to congratulate you on launching the show and uh, really, really enjoy what you're doing and happy to be on with you. As far as me personally, um, spent my career uh, 15 plus years in the energy finance arena, worked at investment banks and hedge funds, and about five years ago, launched my own independent research firm. Um, and so at Liam Research, my firm today, we cover US energy holistically. So we cover shale. Uh, we also cover power and renewables. And so we're writing and compiling data for investors and executives on solar, both residential and utility scale and wind, both offshore and onshore as well. Thank you for all that background. It's good to know that you're covering a lot of areas of the energy sector. And so I will say just to listeners, the reason I kind of brought you on here and the way we connected, I should say, is is I've been getting some research notes from your team periodically. And one of them touched on the net metering issue going on in California. There was a couple of findings in that report that I, I found totally fascinating. But first, let's kind of set the table for listeners who might not have a clue what net metering is. Or, you know, might not live in California and think it doesn't affect them. So walk me through that. What is it? How does it work? How do consumers up to now benefit from it? 
Sure. Yeah. So a lot to unpack there. I think it is, um, you know, as you mentioned, Sean, the debate is is sort of hyper-polarized and we think it's probably the most important energy policy discussion occurring at the moment in the U.S. market with maybe offshore wind being a close second, but it is something that can have a huge impact on the rooftop solar boom that we've seen over the past couple of years. So the basics, what is it? Net energy metering or NEM. It is a solar incentive structure, but it's not the typical incentive that you might think of like a rebate or some sort of a subsidy. It's really a market mechanism that allows homeowners that have panels on the roof to monetize excess generation. And so the way that it works is if you have solar on your roof in most states, and I think this is you know implemented in about 40 states around the country, you will have a different kind of meter on your, on your home. And this is a meter that will spin backwards and forwards. And so during the midday hours when the sun's shining bright and you're not using all of the electricity being generated by your panels, net metering is the mechanism by which you backfeed your excess energy into the grid, store it there, and in return you get credits. Those credits can then be used when the sun sets at night, when you're pulling energy from the grid, maybe uh, deferred from the summer to the winter, um, when you need the energy. And so it effectively increases the system's utilization. Okay. And this is a benefit to homeowners because they're basically selling back or kind of getting credit for energy that they're not using, and it drives their you know monthly bill down, right? They're saving money. That's exactly right. And I think the way that we think about it is it effectively increases the utilization of the system. So some of the solar, you know, energy um, advocacy groups have quantified how much of an average rooftop solar system goes back into the grid under net metering. And those estimates range between 20 to 40%. So if you think about, you know, the high end of that, you know, if you've got solar panels on your roof and you have net metering, 40% of your system's production you're able to tap that because of net metering. Without net metering, your max utilization of your system is only about 60%. And so without it, your economics, the value proposition to you to make that investment to install solar, I think is 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 marginalized. And so this is really, this policy has been incredibly effective at growing the installed base of solar across the nation and and making that economic decision justifiable for many, many homeowners. And so let's talk about that solar boom in the residential market. What kind of numbers are we talking about here, either, either in California or nationwide? You know, in the last five, 10 years, how many homes have residential solar on the roof? Sure. So if we look at California um, in particular, we're looking at over a million homes, probably close to 1.2 million homes that have solar panels on the roof. Um, that's about 11% of the actual generation capacity that we see in California. And in California, it is the biggest market. Um, It's close to 40% of the U.S. installed base. So um, to give you some nationwide perspective at at Liam, one of the things we do is we actually compile data on permitting activity in real time every week across about 70 cities that comprise probably 50% plus of the U.S. market. And then we can kind of extrapolate the rest from there. And so last year, for example, we actually tracked a quarter of a million permits in residential solar across the country. California is about 30%, as I mentioned, of this market. So it's a very significant um, geo or sort of regional market for rooftop solar within the country. But certainly we see we see this across the country as, as, as really a booming sector. Now, are there any averages for how much a typical homeowner saves or has been saving thus far when they've installed solar and been able to sell back some of that excess energy to the utility? We, we've seen some of the bills, right, that go to 
go to zero or near zero for electricity. I think the value proposition that net energy metering has enabled is for a solar company, a solar installer to knock on your door, you know, in San Diego or Austin or whatever city you live in and say, uh, how would you like to have a $10 a month utility bill for electricity? Without net metering, I don't think that happens, right? So I think it is the it is the critical incentive and structure by which homeowners can effectively offset their usage with panels on the roof. Otherwise, I think you're looking at the need for a, a large amount of storage to be installed along with your rooftop system in order for you to accomplish the same thing. And that obviously increases your upfront costs and changes the economic equation, you know, for a given customer. So I, I think this really, you know, again, as we think about what's the impact, this is the reason why you can have a $10 electric bill. So taking that information and applying it to what's going on in California right now, there's been a couple of public meetings about proposals to change the net metering system. So Walk me through what those are and, and, and why there's a need for a change and which constituencies or which groups are coming at it with various proposals. Sure. So yeah, a lot there. Um, how much time do you have? <laughs> um, you know, I think to understand where we stand today, again, hyperpolarized debate, very controversial, lots of headlines flying around right now. I think that all kind of started last month when the utilities lobbed their proposal, a 100-page proposal, into CPUC, which is the California Public Utilities Commission for Consideration. And those proposals were pretty loaded, and they were pretty loaded, quite frankly, against rooftop solar. This is nothing new. You know, we've seen utilities propose similar ideas and constructs before, um, and it hasn't worked. So I think to set the stage a little bit, maybe, Sean, for where we are today before we get into some of this current debate, um, we need to back up a little bit and understand where net energy metering originated and came to be in California. And California is actually where it started. Um, It started here and was exported across the US. It started in the mid 90s. For your listeners that want to nerd out a little bit, they can go and and read uh, a state bill from 1995. It was um, SB 656 that established net energy metering. And essentially what this did was establish the policy to encourage distributed energy growth and private investment in renewables. That was the goal at the time. And over time, the policy has been renewed and expanded to meet the state's aggressive clean energy goals. And I think where the current reform proceedings kind of really trace their roots back is to 2013. In 2013, California removed the solar utility load cap. And at that time when they did that, that was a a pro-solar change, they basically tasked CPUC, the California Public Utilities Commission, with undertaking reform to the value equation around net energy metering. Now that was going to take place in a series of steps over many years, but that's when the ball got rolling was back in 2013. That resulted in the last major change happening in 2016. And that's when we saw NEM 2.0 sort of implemented. And at the time, CPUC said, we're going to come back and reevaluate this issue in 2020. So again, you know, here we are today, very hot, very controversial, but nothing new. This has sort of been brewing for the last seven years or so. All right. Now, if I live in Texas or Florida or you know anywhere else in the country, why do I care what's going on in California? Yeah, I think there's a couple of reasons. Um, the first is this is a critical market. We kind of talked about the size. Um, so point one, I'd, I'd, I'd say one of three points why you should care. The first is that California is a massive market 
for this industry. Uh, you know, I mentioned our data at Liam. We think California is about a third of the market. So two, it's critical to the solar industry and the health of the solar industry. Public companies like Sunrun, SolarEng, Enphase, these are well-known companies. If you're in Texas, you may have invested in some of these companies. These are companies with a great deal of exposure to the California solar market. And beyond that, I think the third point why everyone should really pay attention to this is this idea of sort of as California goes, so goes the rest of US solar. And we mentioned earlier, you know, NEM started in California. That's where it was first conceived and codified into law. And now 40 or so states across the country have adopted that policy. So what we see is in many cases, the solar policies that California is implementing are setting precedent that other states are adopting. One additional recent example of this, and I think you probably covered this in your newsletter, the Smart Brief newsletter, uh, Sean, as well, is the uh, what's happening in Massachusetts around the Solar Neighborhoods Act, where in Massachusetts, they've actually proposed legislation that seems very similar to what California did last year, which was to mandate that every new home that's built has to have solar on the roof, right? So we see the policy ideas in California that are implemented there exported across the nation. So this debate not only maybe shapes the future of California, which is a massive market for residential solar, but it also potentially has great implications for NEM regimes in other states. That background on, on NEM 1.0 and NEM 2.0 and why it matters across the country is, is tremendously helpful. We'll be right back. EDF Renewables' purpose is to build a net-zero energy future with electricity and innovative solutions and services to help save the planet and drive well-being and economic development. We're committed to providing future generations with the means to power their lives in the most economic, environmental, and socially responsible ways possible. We understand the importance of managing energy integration in a way that also enables clean energy projects to improve the electric grid. Our tailor-made solutions can solve energy challenges facing our customers, no matter the size or complexity. EDF Renewables. Energy your way. And now, back to our conversation. So, you mentioned that utilities in California and their 100-page proposals came out with some ideas that obviously are probably what they want to see implemented because it's in their best interest. So, what are some of the key aspects of those proposals? Yeah, so I I think... To set the stage a little bit to explore that and some of the the specific nuances of the proposals, we have to sort of understand what's at the heart of this kerfuffle, right? Um, And the big debate. And and what is at stake is money, literally tens of billions of dollars between now and 2030, 20 plus billion. And where this comes into play is the cost burden and cost shift and where that burden is born, right? So today, I think where the need to reevaluate NEM, and I think everyone will agree on this, whether you're a solar advocate or not, um, I think everyone does agree there needs to be a revisitation of the value equations. And the reason is it comes down to the export credit rate, um, which today in California is near the retail rate, so call it 30 cents per kilowatt hour, and the actual value created by the solar generation on your rooftop, which has been quantified at about six cents per kilowatt hour. So, you know, it doesn't take a someone that's an expert in this area to say, look, you know, that the utilities are going to look at this and say, well, a customer is creating something and we're paying them 5x what the value of that something is. Right. So I think that that misalignment between marginal cost and export credit rate is at the core of this debate. And 
from a non-solar customer side. Um, they're going to look at this and say, well, why should the solar customer receive that rate when what they're producing is not worth that? And we're having to bear all the cost of the grid and hardening it against wildfires and climate change and poles and transmission and so forth when those benefits do seem under this policy to accrue to the solar customers. So that kind of sets up the proposals. And, you know, Sean, we've seen more than a dozen different proposals submitted to CPUC in this proceeding. There's going to be endless debate and workshopping and task force and testimony until a decision is made, you know, later this year, December, January timeframe on this. I think what we're seeing is the party lines have, have certainly formed. And on the one hand, you have the solar industry advocacy groups and some of the environmentalist advocates in alignment. And on the other hand, you have utilities and you have the ratepayer advocates and some of the social justice groups, which have formed on almost more in alignment with the utility side. So an interesting alliance forming there. But in our view, you've got to look at four major areas that are critical to what's happening here. Number one is the export credit rate. So what does a solar customer get for putting uh, their feed back to the grid? The second thing is what are the retail rates for grid usage of solar customers and how, how might those change? The third thing is the true up period. So currently you can roll your credits forward as a solar customer for a year. And that's very helpful because in the summer you're creating a lot of excess credits that you might use in the winter. There's some proposals that want to go to monthly on that. So the true, let me just, let me jump in there on the true up period. Mm -hmm. How would that shift things if if you go from annually to monthly? Sure. So, uh, you know, if you think about timing of when you're storing the most solar credits, when your panels are producing more than you need is summer. Right. And so in the summer months, some solar customers can actually compile quite a few credits that they're able to roll through August and, you know, October and then use ultimately in November, December timeframe. If you constrict the timeframe for which you can roll those credits, the value is somewhat marginalized. So I would guess the homeowners want to be able to roll them annually and the utilities want to say, hey, you've got 30 days to use the program monthly. Exactly. Exactly right. Okay. And what were the other aspects of the proposals you've read? The last one is probably the biggest. So just to recap, we had number one, export credit rates. Number two, retail rates paid. Three is the true up period. And then the fourth, and this has probably gotten the most headlines and everything lately, is the monthly fixed fees. And these are solar specific charges that the utilities want to add. If you have solar panels on your roof and you're a net metered customer, you've got to pay 50 or 60 or $90 a month as a fixed fee before we even talk about what that generation's worth, right? And so when you add all this up, I mean, some of the calculations are draconian on some of these plans in terms of the payback period for a new customer. So let's say you're a new customer and this new regime is passed. You might be expecting a five, seven-year payback period on your investment on your system. It might balloon out to 20 to 30 years. So it really does, as you look at the nuances around these four key aspects, um, it can really alter the value equation for a new customer. So customers would potentially be going from, you know, zero or 10 bucks a month to 60, 70, 80, just because of the, or for more. the connection fee or more just for the connection, just fee, right? for the connection. Even- fee. Yeah. Just for the connection fee before we even talk about, you know, rate reduction on the the credits. Exactly. Now, one of the key reasons, you know, groups resist this, and I I think this goes back years and years, I want to say in Arizona somewhere, is that once you establish that connection fee, a lot easier to raise it. (laughs) You know, a couple of you come back a couple of years from now, and now it's a hundred bucks instead of 50 or things like that. Is that another reason uh, where some of the consumer groups are trying to just prevent that from even getting started? 
Yeah, I think that's certainly something that the the pro solar groups are looking at. But I think even more than that, it's it's looking at if the utilities proposal was implemented verbatim, what happens to the solar market? How many installations do we go to next year versus this year? And I think the answer to that is it's a massive haircut, right? So it's you're going to curtail the growth trajectory of solar dramatically. Even before we talk about inflation of the fee in the future, the immediate impact of this is to erect a massive roadblock to rooftop solar installations if it passes, if the utilities were to get what they wanted, right? So there's a lot of alignments on this, on these proposals. So how is that shaken out? Because I think what we're seeing, uh, I really want to dive into this because we're seeing kind of new, new allies formed, I'd say. There's a lot of utilities are actually somehow finding themselves friends with a lot of equity groups which I think is a, is a fascinating alliance right there. So can you expand on that? Yeah. So let's talk briefly kind of about what some of the different groups want, right? I think there's, again, we're going to be generalizing a lot here because there are a dozen different plans. They're all specific. Um, they all have their nuances. They all have kind of agendas. But if we were to really just generalize and step back 50,000 foot view, um, we'd put the proposals in sort of three buckets. On the one hand, you have the utilities. And what they're proposing is let's roll back net metering by cutting the solar export compensation rate to something that looks more like the avoided cost rate. So cut it by 75%, right? Let's add the monthly fees, which can be $50 a month or more, and effectively, you know, kind of neutralize the value of of solar as far as new customer installations. And again, important to note, this all impacts new customers not existing who are grandfathered in. On the opposite end of that spectrum, you have the solar advocates who their plans generally propose don't move too fast to reduce the net metered credit rate. Let's do this slowly. Let's take a step back, right? Let's ramp it down over time. Let's hit certain hurdles on either installations or battery installations, or maybe even just a time frame. Let's just not rush into this because it's going to be, you know, you're basically going to grind our industry to a halt. Those are the really two opposite ends of the spectrum. And then, as you mentioned, Sean, kind of in the middle somewhere, leaning to one side or another are environmentalist activist groups and social justice advocacy groups and ratepayer groups, right? Kind of all in this bucket and kind of moving to one side or another, depending on the group. But as we look at that group in particular, I think what's interesting about this current debate is that what they're putting forth seems to us to align a little bit more to what the utilities are saying. And this is because of their focus on advocating for disadvantaged communities, disadvantaged homeowners, and low-income customers who might live in multifamily homes and don't have access to solar. And so what they're effectively saying is, look, minorities in California, based on our data at Liam, 70% of, of those don't own a home. And they're bearing the costs of hardening the grid, of transmission infrastructure of poles of of all these other things that the solar paying customers are not paying for under the current regime. So I think that could be a pretty big swing factor in this calculus and where the decision is made is going to have to balance the interest of of low income utility customers. And so that 70% just to kind of walk that out a little bit they don't have access to solar because a lot of times you know they're renting or, or something like that and if you're the landlord and you're not as incentivized to put solar up there if, if you can just pass on the cost of higher energy to your tenants, right? And so is that part of the equation too? So it's one of those things where, like you said, the social justice is kind of almost perhaps going to run into the, you know, the solar groups 
you know, whereas I find that fascinating, right? It's kind of, you know, for lack of a better word, we're talking about two stereotypically progressive groups, right? Exactly. Renewable, yes. The renewable energy crowd and the social justice crowd are now coming to this intersection where, hey, the momentum of the solar crowd could get slowed down by the social justice organizations standing up for these Californians and, you know, eventually people all over the country who are, like you said, either bearing the burden of the grid or just don't have access to the benefits of rooftop solar. And my next question on that is, is there any chance this turns into kind of a waiting game? Because there's some noise coming out of uh, members of the Democratic Party in Congress and in the Biden administration that are trying to build out access to solar to lower income constituencies and and things like that in affordable housing. So is that something that if is it just going to take too long to do that? Or can that get done to almost make this net metering debate in California kind of moot? At least that angle of it, the the social justice part of it. Because yeah, guess what? Everyone does have access. How does that schedule shape out for what's going on with CPUC? Yeah, I, I think that that is a it's, a, it's a noble cause and I'm sure it will have political momentum. But I do think this decision, as we look at the timetable, it's, it's not going to happen in time. The schedule is already... Um, pretty well set on these proceedings for a December proposed decision implementation sometime next year. There could be some sort of a buffer period on implementation, taking this out to, you know, call it mid 2022 before it's effective. But as we look at the schedule of workshops and testimony and hearings and briefs, it's pretty well defined through the September timeframe. So I think what we would need to see, Sean, for what you're suggesting to happen, which is perfect. I, look, the other thing, <laughs> the thing with this is no one knows what's going to happen, right? We've talked to people very, very close to this who have been doing this for a long time. We've listened and engaged with some real experts very close to the policy making decisions on this. And what struck us is the the absolute abject uncertainty around where this goes. And I think the point you made about this sort of intersection, I think you called it, between the progressive movement around weighing solar versus social justice, I might even call it a rift um, or a, sort of a, the conflict of interest here. You know, that's something that didn't really exist in prior NEM discussions, at least to this extent. For example, when you review the utilities proposal, uh, it's the 104-page joint proposal, uh, we ran some keyword searches for synonyms of the word energy equality, right? The idea of energy equality. We found 145 references to that idea in the document. When you look at the prior proposals they've made, this is five times greater in terms of the number of times energy equality is coming up in these proposals than it has been in the past. And so this issue has really risen to the forefront. And it's one of the reasons why we warned clients at, at Liam and we warned clients in a note in March, I think you referenced the note earlier, Sean, that we think this has a better chance of going through in some shape or fashion with, with what the utilities want for this very reason. And I think it comes down to, look, you mentioned it, home solar is for everyone as long as you own a home. Um, and there's a lot of people that don't, right? And so how do we balance those interests? Um, again, the federal government, uh, NEM is not a federally regulated policy. It's done at the state level and then with the utilities commissions. But could the administration come out with something that causes CPUC to tap the brakes and say, look, we need to defer the decision? Absolutely possible. Um, hard to handicap, but certainly anything's possible. So considering all this, Joseph, what do you think is going to happen? Yeah, you know, I, I think, Sean, there are a couple reasons why we think the utilities might have more success this time than perhaps they've had in the past. And again, this is something that no one really knows what's going to happen. I think it has created what we'd call on Wall Street a, a massive 
overhang of uncertainty on the the stocks engaged in the sector and on the industry in general, which I think will be here until a decision is made in December, January timeframe. We warned Liam clients in March to take this very seriously and that this could be a negative catalyst for the solar growth curve. And I think there are really kind of three key reasons which lead us to this view. Number one, we've talked about this before. It's sort of this alliance of the social justice activism with kind of more of the utilities agenda um, and the ratepayers groups. Um, I think that is new versus prior discussions around net energy metering reform. The second reason I think is the rise of utility scale solar, which is something we haven't talked about yet in this conversation, but I see is incredibly important. And I think what you've seen is a narrative that's being introduced that uh, we see some of the ratepayers and even the utilities kind of pushing a bit in California, which is that utility scale solar is actually a more elegant solution to combat climate change than rooftop solar is. And that comes down to, to marginal cost. They would argue that it is cheaper and more efficient to produce solar energy with utility scale projects than it is on the rooftop. And I think what's different about utility scale today versus say 2016, the last time NEM was reformed, was the scale that it's achieved. So at Liam, we're modeling solar projects on a bottoms up basis for utility scale. And so we're, we're modeling these projects by projects. And so we have really good visibility into the, both the installed base and what's coming. And in 2016, the last time NEM was reformed, California solar was about four and a half gigawatts of capacity online. Today, that's tripled to 12 gigawatts. So over the last four years, utility scale has become a, a real player. In fact, it's surpassed you know, the installed base of rooftop solar. And so I think incentivizing utility scale could potentially give decision makers on this policy, a way to kind of save face with the climate change um, movement and say, look, we're going to push to incentivize utility scale solar because that's more of the social justice friendly policy that still gives us a way to affect, uh, effectively mitigate climate change. If that ends up coming to pass, what kind of impact does that have on nationwide solar? Will other states follow California? Yeah, we, we believe so. And I think it'll take time, right? I mean, I think California is going to take a, I, I think, as we discussed, some sort of a kind of maybe a phased or tiered approach. I, I don't think they'll just erect a, a massive roadblock immediately. I think you'll see more of the utilities proposals incorporated than, than before. Um, but whatever happens with this, certainly over time will influence, in our view, policies in other states that have net energy metering. And so if it is something like we suspect that could work towards the favor of the utilities a little bit more this time, then I think other states take a page from that playbook. Now, does that happen in the next year or two? Maybe not, but over the next five to 10, um, certainly. And I think if if there is, if utility scale solar incentives factor more heavily into this, it would add to our optimism around that. Utility scale solar is something that that we see as, if we think about this from the investor perspective, which is what we do at Liam, we think that utility scale solar is is underappreciated and that trend based on recent application data has a lot of upside. So you mentioned at the top of our podcast that Liam, your group covers a lot of you know energy sources. So what other issues are you keeping your eye on and kind of alerting your, your clients to besides what's going on in California? Yeah, that's a great question, Sean. And beyond, you know, the NEM debate and even beyond residential solar, um, which we're keeping abreast with nationwide, 
I'd, I'd say utility scale solar and offshore wind are two areas where we're both following very closely and also very optimistic about. Um, utility scale solar, based on recent application trends, has a great deal of upside, and that's kind of coming after a real breakout year in 2020. As we look at kind of what's in the ISO interconnection queues um, across the country, there's a, a surge in waiting lists uh, for projects in recent quarters um, across the four major ISOs in the U.S. Uh, we see a, a dramatic increase in utility scale solar projects. And so we're modeling those project by project, and we think there's a lot of potential um, for growth in, in that segment. And then offshore wind, I think, is also extremely exciting. I think a lot of people, ourselves included, have expected the Biden administration, the policies being implemented at, at BOEM, which manages offshore wind uh, leasing and, and project oversight, uh, be very positive for offshore wind development, which is sort of in, I wouldn't even say it's in the first inning, right? It's sort of in the on-deck circle. Um, and so I think what we're seeing is exactly what we'd expect. And it's setting into motion what I think will be a, a massive build out um, for that sector over the next 10 years. Do you think we're going to hit the Biden administration's goal of 30 gigs of offshore wind by 2030? We get there um, and beyond. I think that's uh, we actually put out a note that there was a little bit of sandbagging on that target. We think that's kind of a slam dunk based on what we see in the queue already and what we see in some of the really exciting call, call areas like New York Byte um, and the the very uh, motivated acceleration of leasing and project activity. I, I think we easily get there. So you mentioned the importance of, of battery storage. I do want to ask you real quick, California's trying to do a lot on that as well. Uh, I guess everywhere is doing a lot on it, but California's definitely, particularly Southern California, doing some stuff on that. Are we there yet where that can prevent uh, the kind of blackouts or rolling blackouts that we've seen? Or are we still a few years away from where that's just going to kind of help, not 100% solve that kind of problem, but take a bite out of it? I think it's still a few years away, and it's good to see people pushing in that direction. I mean, our view is that that is going to be essential um, in in eliminating the volatility. Um, and if you just think about the, we talked earlier in the NEM conversation about the sort of time of use problem with solar, right? You generate more in midday, and as solar gains scale, and a lot of that, you're, you're sort of seeing that midday market be oversupplied, and then the nighttime market undersupplied. And so, batteries can solve a lot of that. I think we do need to see a more advances on technology, where batteries improve and get better. They've come a long way, but we still have a long way to go. And then B, I think you've got to see a lot of investment, billions of dollars, in infrastructure around plugging those batteries into the grid. Now, one of the things we do on this podcast, I know you mentioned you've listened to the first couple of weeks, is we have a little shtick. Renewable energy project or not a renewable energy project. So if you're game, uh, I've got some real and uh, one fake name of a project. So uh, Joseph, you want to you want to get in on this action? Let's do it. All right, we're switching it up a little bit since I've had such a pathetic performance in the first two weeks of being wrong every time. I'm going to switch over to the the MC role and I'm going to throw the the names your way and I'm going to not participate and try and guess because I'm sure I would get it wrong. For new listeners, all this is I'm going to give Joseph the name of five projects. And we do this to kind of poke a little bit of lighthearted fun at all the uh, imaginative and majestic names that a lot of renewable energy projects have. So here we go. The first project that might be a real renewable energy project or a fake renewable energy project. Project name is Cliff's Edge Wind Farm. Next one is Grand Meadow Wind. 
The next is Great Western Wind. The next one's Mustang Solar. And the last one is Vulcan Solar. So again, that's Cliff's Edge Wind Farm, Grand Meadow Wind, Great Western Wind, Mustang Solar, and Vulcan Solar. So you want to take a stab at which one you think is not a real renewable energy project? Man, that is a tough one, Sean. Um, Cliff's Edge reminds me of a uh, energy bar. So let's let's strike that one as not real. I'm going to say Grand Meadow, Great Western, Mustang, and Vulcan are real. And I'm going to go with Cliff's Edge. All right. Well, the envelope, please. Congratulations, Joseph. You got it right. Cliff's Edge win is not a real renewable project. Seriously? <laughs> yeah. Wow. Total shot in the dark. Man. <laughs> I like awesome. the Cliff's Bar uh, <laughs> Association. That was, that was a great one there. <laughs> well, thank you very much, Joseph. I appreciate your time today. This has been a wide-ranging conversation, obviously. And so we'll be keeping an eye on California, what happens with the, the CPUC there and, and net energy metering. So thank you very much for your, your time and your insight. Sounds great, Sean. Good to be with you. Okay, so right now we're going to debut a new segment of this show. It's called The Pod Brief. The idea is that at the end of every episode, I'll circle back and highlight key takeaways from the show. Or maybe I'll just riff on things going on in the renewables industry that make me go, hmm. So that conversation with Joseph Tripke really left me thinking that the California Public Utilities Commission has to come up with a very nuanced solution to the net energy metering conundrum. Does it make sense to ask those without access to rooftop solar to cover the bulk of the costs associated with maintaining and enhancing the grid? No, of course it doesn't. But I'm also not so sure a dramatic increase in fees linked to rooftop solar makes much sense either. If the idea is to generate revenue with those fees, that revenue will never materialize if consumers stop installing solar panels on their homes. And consumers halting their embrace of rooftop solar could have tremendous ripple effects when it comes to jobs. In 2019, the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics projected solar installers would be the third fastest growing profession in the U.S. over the next decade. A great way to decimate the potential of all those jobs would be to raise costs to the point where consumers walk away from rooftop solar because the economics no longer make any sense. Now, Joseph did make a good point about the rise of utility-scale renewable energy sources in California. Maybe that momentum will continue and provide what he called a more elegant solution to the equity and energy portion of this debate. I don't know. There are valid concerns on all the sides of this issue. I'm very curious to see how this all plays out. Well, that's our show for today. Once again, I'd like to thank our exclusive sponsor, EDF Renewables. If you like this podcast, please share it with your friends and colleagues. And be sure to follow us on Apple, Google, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also follow us on Twitter, where our handle is at RenewablesPod. And if you'd like a daily dose of renewable news delivered to your inbox, head to SmartBrief.com and sign up for the Renewable Energy Smart Brief. The Renewable Energy Smart Pod is a production of SmartBrief, a future company.